But this is the CBF Podcast Conversation. Each week, we're bringing you stories from across the world of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, creativity from practitioners, ministers, thinkers, authors, and more. I'm Andy Hale, CBF Podcast host. And this week, we have a special Facebook and YouTube live conversation about abuse, abuse prevention and response advocacy. In a few moments, I'll introduce our guest and we'll jump into our conversation. But we do want to let you know that you'll have the opportunity to present questions to our guest. If you want to comment to the right, if you're on Facebook uh, with your questions, or if you're on YouTube, you can comment down below. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, uh, BSK. What will ministry at your church look like as we exit the pandemic? Where do you see new opportunities and insights needed? What are the pressure points that need support? BSK, the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, invites you to take a short survey where you can share your insights. You will also be entered to win a $100 gift certificate to an online Black-owned bookstore. Help us out and take the survey today at bsk.edu backslash pathways. That's bsk.edu backslash pathways. Well, our guest for this special live conversation is Dr. Reverend Dr. Jay Keevy. He is the coordinator of CBF South Carolina, recently named the new CBF Abuse Prevention and Response Advocate. Jay, thank you for joining the conversation. Thank you, Andy. It's a pleasure to be here. You've had lots of interesting and incredible guests, and I'm just honored and humbled. So thanks for having me. Well, you just you raised the bar being on here. <laughs> Well, you know, something about having two jobs, since I'm still the coordinator for CBF South Carolina and then adding to this in typical ministry fashion, always adding, rarely taking away, adding to this the CBF Abuse Prevention and Response Advocate. But I'm very excited about the role and being here. So thanks, Andy. Well, we'll get to the role here in just a second. So I, I'm devastated by the thought of someone listening or watching this not have any idea who uh, who Jay Keevy is. So. In addition to serving three congregations over a period of 20 plus years, you've been working at CBF South Carolina uh, as the coordinator for almost a decade. Um, what else would you want people to know about you? Um, oh, my goodness. Uh, dad to adult children, um, married to Melanie for 30 years this summer. It's exciting for us. Um, I have very thrilling hobbies. You know, I like walking which I do every morning around the neighborhood and hiking, which is just walking in the woods. Uh, and I really enjoy sewing and cooking. So I'm just, you know, really, really out there for adventure. <laughs> I thought you were going to say something like, like model, model airplanes or something like that. <laughs> That's the way you started that off. The glue, the glue is intriguing, but other than that, no, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You don't take me as the type that would sniff the glue in class. So uh, <laughs> yeah, you were recently straight laced. Yeah. So you were recently named uh, to a new position at CBF Global, the Abuse Prevention and Response Advocate. Um, how is the process going of fitting that title onto um, a business card? <laughs> well, uh, the reality is a lot of what I'm doing as the CBF Abuse Prevention and Response Advocate is things that I have been doing for the last three or four years anyway. Um, as a member of the sort of leadership team for CBF, as a state and regional coordinator, um, I've been the person who from that group joined the Clergy Sexual Misconduct Task Force. So we can talk about some of that work along the way. Um, and so reminding them to help remind churches and support churches doing abuse prevention 
Um, and then that became more and more a part of my calling and interest and passion as I was serving churches in South Carolina. And so as others heard that I had trainings to offer or could offer support, they kind of came calling to me. Um, and so that's what led to the creation of the position was to recognize that uh, CBF churches are interested in having this conversation and it's really great to support them. So I'm really proud actually of CBF for making this a staff level position, one that, that has visibility and presence because it's such an important conversation for our congregations. Well, two things. First, I assume going back to the question about the business card, like it wraps around the back. Typical CBF fashion. We have, we come up with, yeah, it's, it's, it's an amazing title. Uh, we just never have short titles uh, when it comes to CBF stuff. The, the second thing that stuck out to me is said is uh, you were doing something for three years without getting paid to. That's such a church, like such a yeah. church thing we do. Uh, so, but, but I wonder, tell us, tell us about the role. Uh, this is a newly created okay. role. We'll do a deep dive a bit into uh, the task force here momentarily, but tell us uh, kind of what the role is designed to be and to do. Um, sure. It, it, it's designed to help connect churches to the resources they need to help prevent abuse in their context. And so that means, you know, print resources, training resources, CBF produced resources. Uh, it means connecting them to our partner, Grace, uh, godly response to, for godly response to abuse in the Christian environment. Um, I can talk a little bit more about them and that partnership later on, but connecting them to Grace, um, as well as helping churches respond well if there is an allegation in their congregation. So helping them sort of understand what a, a good response is and facilitating that if, you know, if they need the help. So. Uh, calling is, is such a powerful story. Um, so tell us about your sense of calling to this very unique role. Um, a long time ago, uh, my family was personally impacted by clergy sexual misconduct uh, and in the process of that, you know, recognized the, the damage it can do and the struggle it creates. Um, we experienced both good and bad responses. And so we know uh, the power of a good response and the trauma of a bad response. And so a few years ago, when CBF stood up the Clergy Sexual Misconduct Task Force, so it's been four or five years ago now, um, because of my experience and wanting to prevent other families from having those experiences, um, I volunteered. And so through the process of learning on the clergy sexual misconduct task force, being in the presence of really inspiring, thoughtful, incredible um, scholars and leaders who, who were working together to help develop the resources for clergy sexual misconduct, as well as some relationships in South Carolina with some really incredible ministers who have made their ministry uh, responding to abused children and working to prevent. Um, all of those things kind of came together for me um, as that growing sense of calling to, to this work. It just became a natural part of things that, um, I could talk about in churches and, and offer to them. So, so that's a good segue to, to look at, you know, how will your work uh, impact local churches? How, how do you plan to work alongside local congregations? Um, well, uh, it, it'll be promoting. So reminding them that there are resources out there, but it'll also be coming alongside them when they need more direct support. So, 
if a church or a minister doesn't know who to go to for training in their local community, I can help them find that. If they need help developing their policies to for uh, abuse prevention and protection of youth and children, I can help them develop those. Um, if they need more robust training or are interested in a safeguarding certification, which is part of what our partnership with Grace establishes, I can connect them to those resources. Um, if there's been a disclosure or an allegation in the congregation, I can come to leadership and say, here's sort of the benchmarks of a best response and help them find the resources for those for that response as well. Hmm. So, as you said before, you were part of CBF yeah. and BWIM. Uh, had a clergy sexual misconduct task force. And for those that are, are not aware of this initiative, um, tell us more about this project. Uh, so Susie Painter called together this, uh, this project and not really in response to any particular allegation, but just out of a sense of um, looking forward for what will be important for ministers and churches Um she called together this task force to create educational resources to raise awareness in congregations about, you know, what clergy sexual misconduct is, um, and then to develop some resources to help them respond well and to prevent clergy sexual misconduct. Um, and so what we discovered early on, so four or five years, we pulled together eight, eight or 10 people that included social workers, professors of social work, uh, people working in congregations, ministers, me from a CBF state and regional organization, Pam Durso, who was um, executive director of BWIM, Baptist Women in Ministry, and Stephen Reeves, who was a CBF advocacy um, manager, director, I don't remember what his title was, but CBF advocacy. They co-chaired Stephen and Pam, and they pulled us together for conversations. What what does it mean when we talk about clergy sexual misconduct? And so our first task was really to, to define and describe, you know, what was my very first learning was that pastors, ministers really don't have affairs with church members. It is always abuse because there's an imbalance of power in those relationships. Ministers, pastors have spiritual authority um, with relation to the people they serve. And so that puts them at an imbalance. Um, and so we characterized sexual contact, sexual behavior with people in our spiritual care as clergy sexual misconduct or clergy sexual abuse. And raising awareness of that, you know, in congregations to help churches see this is not just a this is not just a moral failure. This is this is an abuse in relationship. And so the response needs to be trauma informed and care for the victim in a particular way um, and and respond well to the clergy and their families. And so as we uh, developed the resources, that was some of the first learning that that I did for sure and that others in the team and, and that came together in the resources that we now have to offer churches. So there's some educational videos, there's um, to raise awareness primarily, point out sort of where the problem is and, and how it can happen in a congregation, um, and then some resources for prevention. Walk us through um, the journey of the task force creation okay. and, and its subsequent work. Yeah. So, so the task force came together 
for some in-person meetings in Decatur at the CBF office. Um, and we talked about, you know, what could help churches understand this as an issue and what could help churches, what could they establish? What kind of conversations could they have at church? What kind of policies could they um, adopt that would help insulate them from clergy sexual misconduct? And so our first task was to really learn about clergy sexual misconduct and mercifully, wonderfully, um, CBF had a longtime friend and ally in Diana Garland, who was the, the chair of the social work at Baylor, uh, who'd done extensive research on clergy sexual misconduct and her declining health and subsequent death. That research was taken up by David Pooler who was another uh, professor in Baylor School of Social Work and was also a member of the task force. So he really helped us come to understand some of the prior learnings and through some of his research with um, survivors of clergy sexual abuse, you know, what could contribute to protection and adequate response from churches. And so we developed um, a series of videos that introduces the topic. It, it shows how um, relational boundaries can be crossed in ways that are inappropriate between a clergy person and a congregant or a clergy person and another staff member, um, along with the discussion guide. So, you know, this is something that, that um, a, a Sunday school class could access and follow the discussion guide and have a meaningful conversation just on their own with it. Um, and then we developed resources for churches that include a sexual harassment policy. So if a church doesn't have a sexual harassment policy, put that in with the personnel policy so that everybody is clear where the boundaries are in relationship and behavior. Um, we developed a clergy covenant of sexual ethics that can be used as a part of the personnel manual or can be adopted by clergy you know, when they are hired or called to a position. Um, my own CBF South Carolina staff you know, we chose to adopt this clergy covenant of sexual ethics, you know, just once it was rolled out and kind of on our own. Um, and then we also developed a sort of step-by-step -step, um, response guide um, that sort of walks a church through, okay, there's been an allegation against one of your staff people. Here's what you do, right? You can, you can put them on leave. Um, you can make sure that everybody's treated with as much confidentiality as you can in order to understand the stories, make sure that you're hearing what is said and, and believing first so that you can investigate fully, not dismissing out of hand. Um, and we can talk about how and why that's important later on, but um, believing first so that this process begins. Our, our recommendation for, for a best practice is to hire a third party investigator, somebody who is not attached to the church, somebody who um, doesn't have personal relationships with the staff person or the person making the allegation, um, because then you can get the clearest, fairest um, picture of what has happened. And then the church can choose how to respond based on that. Um, but there's also a part of that policy where if a church chooses not to do a third party investigation, how they can do um sort of a second best internal investigation. Though internal investigations are, are really, really tricky to pull off. Yeah. Um, but, so the, but those are the materials that are developed so far. We're working now toward more survivor support materials. So 
compiling a list of pastoral counselors that we can connect survivors of clergy sexual abuse to, um, possibly providing some written materials or some other guidance, um, and and then considering ways that we may have supportive groups or, or ways for um, clergy sexual abuse survivors to sort of network or for mutual support. Uh, point out to those listening, um, you can visit cbf.net backslash safe churches, um, where all these resources that Jay is talking about, along with uh, videos and discussion guides and all sorts of things are available um, at that website. Uh, we want to remind folks that are, are watching, uh, you can contribute some questions uh, that we'll get to uh, later on. I do need to pause to tell you about one of our other annual sponsors. This uh, podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health, whose mission is to help family and faith communities and their leaders thrive. Healthy congregations can transform their communities to be more compassionate, faithful, and just. Utilizing a network of highly skilled coaches, consultants, and intentional interim ministers, the center supports congregations and ministry leaders to address the challenges they face. Visit their website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about how the center can be your trusted partner in ministry. To, to help us better understand what it looks like to create a healthy culture and systems around abuse prevention and response, can you paint an image for us of how most churches handle abuse uh, prevention and response? Uh, you know, what are some of those common practices um, that maybe well, people don't realize are, are maybe not that great? Well, there's a lot to say there, Andy. Um, well, let's start with, you know, along with preventing the abuse of adults, clergy sexual misconduct, with adults. Um, you know, we're also offering opportunities for churches to grow in their protection of children or other vulnerable adults. And so, you know, response to when there's an allegation of abuse of a child is, you know, completely different. Churches in most states, clergy in most states are mandatory reporters. And so if, if you have a suspicion, a reasonable suspicion, and so if someone says to you, I think someone is abusing this child, that's a reasonable enough suspicion that you have to contact law enforcement and respond. You know, your hands are tied, at least in the initial part of that response. Um, and part of the work of training and, and connecting to churches is to help clergy and others who work in the, the teaching and leading of children in those environments to understand their role as mandated reporters. Um, you know, because part of protecting kids, even when it's hard, is making that call. Um, so there's not much I can say with certainty that is universal um, in, in church response, other than to say, every time you go to church, you are in the presence of survivors of abuse. We know that the, the prevalence of abuse is high. One in four girls, according to the Centers for Disease Control, one in 13 boys um, are sexually abused. We know that the, the, the ratio of women who are assaulted in adulthood is somewhere in one to five, one to six. So we know that when we come to church, we are in the presence of people who have survived abuse. Um, and so in many ways, how we interpret the scriptures when there are stories of imbalances of power where people are abused 
you know, sends a message of care or not to, to people who are survivors of abuse and the kinds of culture we create around prevention sends a message to people who are survivors of abuse. Either we are telling them wonder, right? If, if they disclose their abuse, will they be believed? Uh, will they be supported? Will they be understood? Um, so um, the first thing is for churches to consider how and what messages they're sending to abuse survivors who are a part of their congregation already. Um, following that, um, you know, the first, I think the first child protection policy that I adopted or was in a church that adopted as a pastor was because the um, church insurance company, you know, kind of said, we're going to raise your rates really high or maybe not cover you at all unless you have this policy. Right. So so we're kind of strong armed into it. Uh, and I think that's probably the introduction for many, many congregations is that somebody outside the church is saying, you've got to have this, right? And so um, for many churches, that means a, a rudimentary policy that, um, that that sometimes is a, is a decent policy. You know, if you get the policy from the insurance company, it's going to be focused primarily on reducing risk and risk to the children and risk to the church, which is not a bad thing. Um, but if we really want to create a culture that honors survivors, helps protect in deep ways, then we need to move past just risk prevention into really owning our responsibility to protect children. You know, Jesus, Jesus reserves some really strong language for folks who harm kids. You know, when he brought them to him and blessed them, you know, he said, if you scandalize them, if you put a stumbling block before them, literally in Greek, scandalize, uh, better, better to be cast in the sea with a huge stone around your neck, right? So following Jesus means you know, sort of owning our responsibility as adults to protect children. And so churches that have really found and discovered that part of their calling, I think, are, are a little bit ahead of the game beyond just having a policy because they're going to work to understand, you know, what are the dynamics of abuse, right? Not just protecting children while they're at church. You know, every church should have two adults in every room, wherever there are children. Every church should run background checks all the time, right? And that protects children while they are at church, which is incredibly important. Um, every church should have policies that stipulate, you know, what is sexual harassment and how are um, the, the clergy gonna behave when they are at church, right? That protects people at church. But really, because we're followers of Jesus on Sunday morning and Wednesday night and all of the other time to learn the dynamics of abuse, learn how to recognize abuse, learn how to protect the other children that are in our lives and in our families um, when we're not at church. Right. So so that's what I really hope for, is that we can help cultivate a culture that 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 understands a part of our following Jesus is protecting children. So seeing this picture, you know, you, you talked about things in a way that, and, and I think it's true for many congregations, that uh, a, a lot of their policies are reactionary. Um, you know, that they're developing something after it's happened, or maybe even just now they're developing things in kind of the reality of the Me Too movement. Mm -hmm. um, 
so, but what are some of the common uh, pitfalls or blind spots in the way that congregations approach this conversation and culture? Well, sure. Um, one is the failure to consider known offenders who want to attend church. Um, you know, for most congregations, we want everybody there that can be there. And if if a known offender, if somebody who is on sex offender registry, you know, shows up, um, we need to be really careful and go through some really diligent processes. And, and that's a big blind spot for folks. Um, most experts, uh, most people who work with sexual offenders would encourage churches to start with no, you can't worship with us in our main time or when children are around and work toward yes, depending on their answers and what they're willing to agree to. Um, most churches, I think, start with yes and look for a reason to say no, which is, you know, maybe insufficient. So I think that's one of the blind spots. Um, I think another is um, particularly for smaller congregations or congregations that have um, um, many family connections, um, the hesitancy to do really thorough background checks and reference checks on the people who are working with kids. Um, you know, I've seen some pretty offended deacons at the suggestion that the 80 year olds have to have background checks done who've been keeping the nursery for 45 and 50 years. And I understand that. Um, I do. But if there are exceptions in the policy, those will be the exceptions where a predator comes through. Um, and so it's much easier to say everybody has a background check than it is to say these categories of people or these people we've known this long or whatever. And that's particularly dangerous when you consider that more than 90%, probably 91 to 93% of children are abused by people the family knows and trusts. 40% of the 91, 2, or 3% are family members. 60% of that 93% are um, neighbors, acquaintances, community members, right? And so if we're focused only on the strangers to us who are dangerous to our children, then we're missing 93% of the threat. Um, and so that is an invitation, really, to make sure that everybody is held to the same standard, no matter how long we've known them, no matter whose family they're in, no matter what role they have at church. You know, everybody lives in the same boundaries in relation to children, vulnerable adults. Everybody has the same background check, treatment, follows the same rules. So one of the common tropes used uh, in, in these situations by congregational leaders is that we just need to show some grace and forgiveness to all those involved. Um, tell us why that doesn't cut it. Uh, why, why does uh, such an expression, you know, what, what does that do to the victims and what, what kind of effect does that kind of response have on the abuser? Well, I'll talk first about adults. Um, you know, so when a clergy person, um, sexually offends, behaves inappropriately with an adult in the congregation. And that person discloses that this, this abuse has happened to authorities in the congregation, to others in the congregation. 
um, that victim of abuse is taking a huge risk. They are putting at risk relationships in the congregation, uh, scrutiny. I mean, we see how people are responded to in the media. They are taking a risk that they will be believed at all. Um, and so when the first response is forgive and forget, that's very dismissive of the harm that the abuse causes. Um, what we what we know, and this was part of David Pooler's research, which was just illuminating for me, was that very many victims of clergy sexual abuse say that the poor response of the congregation, right, not not believing them, taking the side of the minister, pressing them to forgive and forget, was in the long run more harmful and more detrimental to their faith than the actual abuse at the hands of the clergy person. And so losing community, being ostracized, not being believed, um, those things cause more damage and more damage to faith, um, oftentimes than the abuse itself. Um, if we start with believing the person and work toward understanding the behavior that happened rather than jumping to, well, it was, it was clearly a misunderstanding. If we, if we work a little harder than that, then we have chances at restorative justice with adults, you know, where a victim survivor is cared for, where they are treasured in community and where an offending clergy person, you know, may be able to reestablish uh, a quality ministry, one that, one that is filled fruit with fruitfulness and grace, you know, but, but that's a process. And that's a process that starts with recognizing the harm of inappropriate sexual behavior. Um, now for children, um, you know, it, because it's also a legal process, you know, and then some of those processes are a bit different and, and much more complicated. Um, but when you talk to people who work at child advocacy centers, who day in and day out stand with victims of child sexual abuse, it's not unusual if a case goes to court and goes all the way to trial, which is highly unlikely, you know, less than 3% of, um, 3% of disclosures where somebody makes a report to law enforcement ever make it all the way to trial. So that's a very low percentage. But it's not uncommon for those that do, for the offender to have more people supporting them in court than the victim. And partly, maybe mostly, that comes from misunderstanding the dynamics of abuse. You know, clergy people are in a position to enact behavior that um, hides their abuse. Um, it's called grooming. Uh, and it means, you know, showing one face to all the community and then another much more cruel face to the person who's being abused. And so when someone discloses, it's really hard to believe that this person who you've only experienced in the best possible light could do such a terrible thing. Um, and so that for me is why having these conversations about prevention, having these conversations around policy, making a plan on how you're gonna respond if somebody makes an allegation, learning about the dynamics of abuse that include the behavior of offenders and grooming behavior is so essential because it makes it possible for us to have 
a better response, one that's not just dismissive or imagines, oh, because this person is nice or we've known them for 30 years, they couldn't have done this. When the evidence tells us something completely different and when the statistics tell us something completely different. And, you know, I think what what we recognize and what we know, particularly for institutions. So, you know, it's been in the media forever and ever, Michigan State and USA Gymnastics and all these huge institutions who had these abuse scandals and responded poorly over and over and over again, is that institutions, and this includes the church, the big church, and this includes local congregations, if, if they don't have a plan for responding otherwise, their reflex is going to be to protect the institution and to protect the leadership of the institution. And so we need to put in place some guide rails that will prevent that immediate reflex and that will protect victims from further harm. So part of creating a culture of of thriving uh, through abuse prevention response comes by understanding the language around these matters. And and there's a few terms commonly used by uh, the clergy sexual misconduct task force Mm -hmm. that um, I'd like for you to explain. And one of those terms is trauma informed. Okay. Um, So trauma informed means understanding the impact of trauma in a person's life and responding to that trauma uh, with understanding. So um, trauma happens when uh, we have a negative experience, a painful experience, our brains and bodies learn, and this is wired into us at the, at the, the deepest part of our brains. I'm not great on the brain science, right? But it's precognitive. So our brains perceive a threat and they respond. It's fight or flight. But if we are overwhelmed, then it might be freeze or fawn. And what happens with trauma is those responses get kind of locked in. And so whenever we're in similar situations, our brain or our situation that our brain perceives similarly, whether we're in actual peril or not, it responds with this heightened fight or flight, you know, sort of energy or completely shuts down that sort of fawn energy that just implodes. And so trauma informed is a way of understanding sort of how our bodies and brains respond when they perceive threat and asking, you know, when we, when we see somebody who is acting out or responding inappropriately to, um, to an experience around them, you know, somebody just gets really irate in a meeting, you know, because of a simple question or an innocent question, or somebody completely shuts down every time they're around a particular type of person. Um, You know, these may be trauma responses. And sometimes, you know, we see these responses and we ask what's wrong with that person, right? Why can't they control their behavior? Why do they make such bad choices with their life, right? Trauma-informed response is not what's wrong with this person, but what happened to them that this is behavior they're choosing to try to protect themselves, right? And it 
it reframes sort of how we can relate to people pastorally. Um, and it reframes sort of how we can help people find safety um, by helping them recognize that, you know, the, the behavior that's causing them so much trouble in their life may actually be their body trying to protect them and their brain trying to keep them alive. And how can we, you know, work together in that understanding to bring about a more helpful, you know, sort of communal response. So I would say that's what trauma-informed means. So, okay, we, we kind of need to acknowledge the fact that uh, wise are hosting a conversation on sexual abuse. Um, we probably are not too far off from where many churches go to handle these kinds of things. So what does it look like for churches to make sure they have a, a diverse set of perspectives and voices creating these preventative and response policies and cultures? Yes, this is very hard. Um, I, I have a couple of thoughts about that. One is we need more men talking about preventing sexual abuse because it's a man's problem, right? If, if it, has, it has typically been women who point out the problem because women have been the recipients of the abuse. Um, and so we need more men in the space taking on the hard task of listening and learning and responding and being willing to stand up in the presence of other men and say, this behavior is no good. You know, you, you can't act like this, that we need better policies. We need this to be a man's problem. Um, so from that perspective, um, okay, <laughs> it's okay for us to be talking about this. It's important for us to be talking about this, Andy. Um, but it also means that men in particular need to listen to the experiences of women and others, um, you know, who have been victims of abuse, need to listen to learn what is a compassionate response and what is a helpful response and what would actually have protected them. Um, you know, while we need to be leaders in prevention and stopping, we need to be empathetic, compassionate, listening leaders in response to this. So uh, for some, this might sound like we're talking about two do totally different topics. Uh, however, right. I, I wonder if you might help us understand why spiritual formation and abuse prevention are mutually shared ideas. Sure. Um, you can't be a disciple if you're feeling unsafe all the time. Um, you, if you are harmed at church, you can't hear how much God loves you. Um, if you are in a, a heightened state of fight or flight, if you are, you know, sort of your brain and body are trying to protect you, you know, you, you really can't hear and process the good news. And that's tragic. And so we need churches to be safe places, safe places for children, safe places for adults, safe places for survivors of abuse, you know, so that, you know, in their safety and the fullness of who they are, um, 
they can hear the love and grace of Jesus and can respond and can, you know, go out and serve others and help others respond. Um, and so it's just it's just really impossible, I think, to have a thriving church, a thriving faith, a thriving faith community when abuse is present. So you're embarking on this new role. Uh, you're taking up the good work of BWIM and of CBS Advocacy Wing. Um, Mm-hmm. As you as you maybe look five years down the road, what what do you hope the fruits of, of your labor and those that co-labor with you will, will produce out of this this initiative? Uh, you know, I, I hope we have 100 churches who are certified safeguarding congregations who've, who've done the hard work of learning and writing great policy and just doing the things naturally that comes naturally to them to protect kids. You know, I, I hope we're a place where um, pastors understand the impact of trauma in people's lives and are safe places and help churches be safe places for survivors of abuse in their midst. Um, I hope that we learn as pastors and, and Sunday school teachers to use abuse and trauma as one of the lenses we take to the interpretation of Scripture so that we can help understand where God is for people who are being abused and so that we can help them find and discover that, you know, God loves them. God, God didn't make this happen. God responding with love and grace and is offering um, healing and restoration. And, and the church wants to be a part of that and can be a part of that. Um, I, I hope that, you know, every congregation will have some conversation around what it takes to protect kids, at least, even if they haven't taken up the other conversations about, um, abuse and safety and and trauma-informed ministry, um, that at the very least, we are being as conscientious as we possibly can with the very simple things that we know will help protect kids while they're with us. Two adults in every room, great policies, every, every contact with kids is visible. Um, everybody who has supervisory control of children has been background checked and reference checked. I mean, these, these are, these are the baseline things. So I would hope that in five years, every church would be at least playing at that level. We need to pause to tell you about our other annual sponsor, McAfee School of Theology uh, at Mercer University, who exists to train ministers who inspire the church and world to imagine, discover, create, in God's future. Located in Atlanta, Georgia, the McAfee School of Theology offers doctoral and master degree programs, including a fully online master divinity degree, the only fully online MDiv offered by a national research university. You can visit their website, theology.mercer.edu, to learn more about their programs and scholarships. We also want to invite you to join the CBF podcast community, the CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support for a few dollars per month. You can receive some perks like name recognition on the podcast, books from the podcast, joining me for an interview with an upcoming guest or hanging out with next summer's podcast guest at our general assembly. Uh, Join the existing podcast listener support community. Uh, We see you Cincinnati, Ohio, Raleigh, North Carolina, Milton, Florida, Munich, Germany, and Cape Town, South Africa. Uh, I want to extend a word of thanks to those watching and for those that are adding their great questions to the conversation. Uh, We invite you to check out Jay and CBF's work at abuse prevention and response at cbf.net 
backslash safe churches. Uh, Jay, thank you for making time to have this conversation. Uh, we look forward to seeing congregations create a thriving culture through your leadership in these very challenging conversations. Thank you so much, Andy. I, uh, I'm willing and ready and eager to, to help congregations. So contact me. I'd love it. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want uh, more, be sure to subscribe to CBF Podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, the Center for Congregational Health, McAfee School of Theology's Doctor of Ministry Program. Check out cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more.